So first of all, our, our guest uh, needs no introduction, but I will introduce him anyway. Uh, so uh, Will Mitchell, uh, I'm sure you all know, is a professor of strategic management at the University of Toronto's Rotman School, where he holds the Anthony Fell Chair in New Technologies and Commercialization, and he serves as the co-director for the Global Executive MBA for Healthcare and the Life Sciences. He previously served <clears throat> on the faculties of Duke University and University of Michigan. He earned his PhD in business and public policy at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he served as uh, first as associate editor for SMJ for I think about 10 years. And then as the co-editor of SMJ for, let's see, I guess that's about eight years. Um, he is uh, a fellow of the Strategic Management Society, also a fellow of the Academy of Management, serves on uh, numerous editorial boards. He has served on the uh, SMS Board of Directors and served as the SMS Competitive Strategy Program Chair. Now, th there's, there's only one dimension on which I stack up against Will, and this is it. He, uh, Will, is a two Will, like myself, is a two-time winner of the Academy of Management BPS Division Glick Best Paper Award. Uh, other than that, I can't stand up to, uh, to, to, Bill's, to Will's list of accomplishments. I, I got that one. Um, he uh, earned the Academy of Management Distinguished Educator and the BPS Division Irwin Outstanding Educator Awards. And look at this list of doctoral students he has mentored. I mean, this is a who's who of movers and shakers in the strategy field and up and coming uh, movers and shakers, um, you know, folks like uh, Gata Mahuja, Glenn Hetker, uh, Samina Kareem, uh, you know, just a, a whole bunch of folks who are really very active researchers in strategy. So, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of lasting impact on the field, you know, this has got to be a big part of it uh, for Will, just the, the number of doctoral students he's mentored who have gone on to have illustrious research careers themselves. So Will, in general, studies how businesses change as their competitive environment changes, and in turn, um, uh, how business, business changes contribute to ongoing corporate and social performance. So please join me in welcoming Will Mitchell. Richard, thank you so much. Um, I've got to say, um, with all the odds and ends of things that are on there, um, Probably the two, I think the two that I have any pride in at all are one is the relationship with you, Dan, um, that got me sort of engaged with, with, with the society and with the, um, and with the journals. Um, I mean, that's been a huge part of my life. It's a part that um, I'm deeply appreciative for, for you creating the opportunity for that to happen. Um, let, me, let, let me interrupt at this point just to say, and you, you've been a great choice if I had anything to do with, with, with what you've done, because uh, you're, you're a fine, fine journal editor. I can tell you that from my own experience with that job. And uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say I know you and I had something to do with what you're doing. Well, thank you. Um, and then the other thing on there that, that matters, to, the, the, frankly, the, the only other thing there on there that matters to me is the PhD students. And I've had the pleasure of being either chair or committee member engaged in one way or another with about 70, 75 students over the years. Um, Aldous, it's great to see your name there. I'm not sure whether you're, you're actively connected right now, but it's great to see your name. And, I'm here, Will. Good, good to have you here today. 
great to hear your voice. Um, um, it's uh, it has been and continues to be a, just an absolute joy to be able to work with with doctoral students. Um, uh, one other thing that that, we, that I guess I should probably put on that list, which I I think foolishly, but but actually not foolishly, agreed to do was to run the full time MBA program as well, which I I technically start doing on July one, but I've been working full time on it for the last six weeks. Ah, um, well, congratulations, or perhaps condolences, as the case may be. It's a project. I, I said when I took it on, it's a project, and this year in particular, it's a project because of, you know all the changes that we're all having to make because of COVID and other things. Yeah, um, and it's you know it's it's takes over my life, but it's it's hugely entertaining. Um, I'm uh, again, Richard, uh, Hijun, others. Thank you so much for for inviting me to do this, and I'm happy. I'm in your hands. When we get to the ninety minute presentation, I'll warn you, I'm not going to do ninety minutes. Oh, okay. Uh, we'll we'll do, we'll take as much or as little time as it needs, and then. Uh, but uh, the, the and then we'll just make a hard stop at the very end. But but we if we get to, um, my experience with these things, if, if we happen to end early, I don't suspect anybody will complain. <laughs> okay, good, good. Well, you know, um, so w- welcome to the the talk show. Uh, appreciate it. Um, I often uh, start these uh, interviews by by noting that um, uh, I don't think any. 10-year-old has ever said, mommy, I want to be a strategy professor when I grow up. Uh, So I think, you know, most of us who get into this career do so through some indirect method or something like that. And there's usually a story behind that. Now, I notice that uh, your previous uh, work experience includes a commercial loan officer, a baker, and a retail store manager. So I'm guessing that there must be an interesting story behind how you got into becoming a a strategy professor. What was the what was the process that led you to this career? Um, lots of long stories. Um, cut short, short story. Um, did one year of undergraduate, quit, went to work for ten years. Um, got angry at work. Decided maybe I should go back to school after all. Um, decided planned to, planned to do an undergraduate. Did, 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 figured I'd do an undergraduate in business so that I would have some skills to do something. Um, had the good fortune to go to a school that had an active research faculty and no MBA program. So the research faculty were teaching in the undergraduate business program. Mm. Um, fell in with a couple of folks, one in finance, one in strategy, got excited by what they were doing and uh, decided maybe this is what I wanted to do after all. Oh, nice. Well, that was, that's fairly direct, actually, uh, other than the 10-year the detour. So Yeah, yeah we I fin- finished my undergraduate on August 19th. 1984, the two of us jumped on a motorcycle in Vancouver, rode it to Berkeley, and started my uh, PhD. <laughs> um, That's great. So what was it in, in that undergraduate experience that attracted you to strategy in particular? Because you mentioned finance also. If you were deciding um, between strategy and finance, what was it? The, the opportunity to take a big picture and then drill down inside it. Um, yeah. and, and, and I did, I couldn't have articulated this at the time, but I'd, artic- but I'll, I'd learned to articulate it now. The willingness of the field to take on questions that have complex causality mm. and then to tease, try to tease out as much as you can, as reliably as you can, at least some piece within that mess of, of, of complex causality. But some of the fields that I know and love are a little bit less willing to take on questions that, that have only partial answers. Mm. And, and we have a field have been willing to do that and then put together partial answers across a, you know, an individual's research agenda, across the field's research agenda, um, and come up with robust insights through triangulation and, and replication. Uh, and as a okay. result, we've got 
at times messy, but ultimately a really strong and important broader view of organizations and so both both business organizations and broader social organizations than most fields do. Yeah, I think there is a richness to this field that your 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 answer kind of captures. That's right. So um, so you went to Berkeley, uh, the legendary Berkeley BPP PhD program. Uh, and uh, I guess you were probably one of the earliest uh, students in that program. Is that not right? In, I, not in BPP itself. BPP has been oh. established for a long time. But I was there at the tram when it was making the transition from basically being a political science program. Um, Ed Epstein, um, David Vogel and others, to being more of a strategy slash um, economics program. Tisa just... Okay. Ollie was Ollie was not there as a faculty member, but he was in. The, he was visiting regularly. Sid Winter was regular visiting regularly. Dick Nelson was visiting regularly. Maori wasn't there as a faculty member, but we yet, but he was visiting regularly. And it was just at this really powerful transition from still taking its its historical interest in social organization seriously, but combining those with a focus on strategy and um, and and, uh, and and economics, and and in fact. Uh, Dan, I'm blanking on the name of the woman. There was a, one, one of our students had come in from Purdue. She was working with you and Arnie, um, and and was kept talking about strategy. And you know, the rest of us were sitting in the PhD program saying, "What on earth is strategy?" Um, and she kept telling us about what you, what you folks are doing at Purdue and what you know what Dan Chandler was doing, what Arnie Cooper was doing. Um, and and so it was really interesting. There was this both this faculty level transition and the student level transition that was taking place. Um, Gary Pisano was there at the time. Uh, Tom Thomas was there at the time. David McKendrick was there at the time. Um, uh, Mike Russo was there. Was there? Um, there were. It was, it was a. You know, you, you we're, we're all in PhD programs. You know how intense they are and how wonderful they are. No matter where you are. Right. Well, it sounds like a, a. You know, obviously a very impressive cast of characters too. So, um, you know, we have we have several doctoral students who are in the process of trying to you know find a dissertation topic. And so I always find that there's usually interesting stories behind that. Uh, you did your dissertation uh, on um, uh, the, you know, medical diagnostic imaging industry, obviously turned into several very highly cited publications for you. Um, so obviously a great success story for that for coming out of that dissertation. Can you tell us about the process that led you to the particular topic that you wound up studying for the dissertation? Yeah, I came in planning to study worker co-ops because I've been working in one. Um, and I spent about a year, year and a half, you know, both studying, you know, looking, studying the theory of worker co-ops and getting data on it um, and discovered that there were more people studying it than there were doing it, which didn't seem <laughs> a little dead end. Um, and I was working on a, working for Susan Foote as an RA. Uh, Susan was a lawyer who was a BPP scholar um, in the BPP group. And for a variety of reasons, we got looking at this notion of medical imaging, um, some stuff with uh, magnetic resonance imaging, NMR at the time, nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. Um, and I'd been talking a fair bit with Ollie and David about transaction costs and thought, oh, good, you know, they, it looks like there might be some transaction costs buried in here. Um, and so I just started messing around with a combination of theory and data. Um, and I th actually, it's interesting because I thought I was doing a transaction cost study. And in fact, I wrote the dissertation as a transaction cost study. 
but in practice, I think I ended up, in, in practice, it's actually more of an evolutionary economic study, an evolutionary strategy study than, than transaction costs. It had much more dynamics in it. Um, and I just got, I just got partly, it was, it, just, it was partly the empirical setting is just hugely intriguing. Mm. Um, it's so complex, it's so dynamic, and it's not, you know, imaging in itself and then just more broadly. Uh, med tech, life sciences. Um, I've never left it. I mean, I still do lots of other stuff, but I still do, but half my work is still life sciences. Um, and then there was this, this really interesting pool of theory, you know, and some combination of transaction costs, Dick and Sid's work on, on evolutionary, um, the ecological work that, um, that uh, Glenn Carroll, who I was working with, um, that John Freeman, who I was working with, taking classes with, were working on. And there was just kind of a, a really interesting, messy nexus in there that, um, has never really let go. So, so in your answer, I, I had never realized, did, did I understand that correctly, that, that it, the original impetus started with something public policy related? Well, policy, I'm not sure if it's public policy or social engagement. Um, okay. It's been a bunch of years working with, with worker co-ops um, and consumer co-ops in Vancouver. Um, and with the goal of having an impact on so, you know, social organizations and society more broadly, uh, which I've never left. Um, but wanting to get down into the weeds where, you know, rather than, I, I don't have that much taste for policy, sort of sitting in the clouds of policy. Mm. Um, I've got a lot more taste for, for being engaged with organizations and being engaged with people. Um, and, Will, could I make a comment, Will, about Berkeley as I knew it? Yeah. Uh, Berkeley... Uh, came to my attention uh, because I was at Stanford <laughs> and uh, uh, I got involved in, in uh, coming to know it uh, by what I studied at, at Stanford in economics. And I, I learned that there was a long history uh, in the economics department at Berkeley that had to do with uh, industrial organization economics and and, uh, Ed Mason and uh, uh, just a host of people. And of course, Oliver Williamson and uh, 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 was in and around there. But I I came to know it in the sixties for that purpose. And, and um, it's had a long, it's had an impact on this field really. Um, and, uh, I, 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 you couldn't have helped, but been impacted by that as a student, uh, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, that tradition was, you know, and we all know what the institution, you know, if there's one theory in social science that I take as having any sort of predictive value is the theory of imprinting and, and imprinting, you know, the the original theory of Stinchman's original theory of imprinting is what happens at the beginning as a long-term impact. And I think you Mm -hmm. can generalize that a bit and say sort of there are major events that happen along an institution's history that have a huge long-lasting impact on, on the nature of the institution and, and certainly you're right then i mean the, the uh you know the bain and mason work um it just and the empirical io just has had a huge impact on it and you know it's come up through people like like janet yellen who, who was uh mm-hmm head of the Council of Economic Advisors. Janet was on the faculty at the time when I, when I was at Berkeley. She was working with Teese. Teese was working with a bunch of other folks. Rich Gilbert was there. Uh, a bunch of folks who were on the FTC during, during the Obama administration were there. Um, it's had and continues to have just a huge impact on, on policy and on practice. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And, in, and in some sense, um, Chicago went from being kind of the regulatory version of IO to the free market version of IO with it through a series of imprinting. And Berkeley in many ways has sort of maintained the mantle of sort of regulatory version of IO. Although I guess with T, would you think with David Teese would be the counterpoint to that? Yeah. He would be, yes. No, I, I, I have to say that just, just looking back on it and myself, uh, industrial organization economics and that that uh, Berkeley was certainly a place Harvard was too and uh, and some of the books that were being written uh, really still uh, was impacted by the de- the Great Depression in the 30s but uh, as people were trying to understand competition but as we got into competitive analysis as a subject of importance to strategic management, um, we we owe a great debt to that 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 vein of thinking in economics. Uh, was important stuff was written, and, yeah, and, and think impacted all of us. There's a thing that Berkeley has done in that field, and this is this is partly David. It's partly a bunch of folks. You know, Janet's part of this. Laura Tyson was part of this. Uh, Rich was part of it. Um, was taking it from being static to making it more dynamic. Because if you think about market power, you can, you can treat it as a static phenomenon. You have some, you know, there's a given level of, of concentration in 2020 in a given industry. Or you can think of it as a dynamic phenomenon. Concentration is changing, technology is changing, competitive forces are changing. And if you try to make policy or try to make strategy based on the way things, the, the, the points the snapshot on June 12, 2020, you make bad policy and you make bad strategy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that group of folks, and this is the business school folks, right? So this is the power of, of bringing the business lens into it rather than just economic theory, neoclassic economic theory lens into it, was to really take seriously the notion of dynamics and how that is relevant at the, the national level at the time competition between the U.S. and Japan, now the competition between the U.S. and China, um, and mm-hmm. looming India and others. Um, at, the, at the firm level, you know, competition within industries, comp- competition in terms of, of co- convergence across industries. Because if you don't take the dynamics seriously, the technological dynamics, the competitive dynamics, um, you just end up doing a really, really bad job and you damage things. And, and again, I think one of the, the huge powers uh, of that group of people was to get that taken seriously in theory, get that taken seriously in theory in, in, in public policy practice and get that t- taken seriously um, in the practice of management. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know just in my own thinking, I, I certainly impacted by a lot of that, 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 that kind of thinking and, uh, and it's contributed an awful lot to the field and its thinking. No question. No question. So I, I'm not at all surprised you ended up in in the strategy field. Uh, you you were well trained for it, so that's a it's a good thing. So I I like your sign, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I'm particularly fond of that uh, street sign. Um, I think the mayor, I, I love the mayor of, of D.C. Um, standing up and saying, damn it, I'm going to claim this, I'm going to claim this park. 
that, that was her, that was the day after the uh, the photo op with her uh -huh. saying, um, uh, "This is my city, this is our city, uh -huh. uh, and uh, you can take photo ops in it if you want, and you can ship either you can push people out of it or reclaim it." <laughs> Very good. So, you know, I, I tell my students, so we, we were mentioning about your dissertation topic. I, you know, I tell my students that they need more than a dissertation topic. They need a dissertation question. And, um, you know, obviously you've over, in addition to doing your own dissertation, you've overseen many, many students' dissertations. Um, what, what, um, what experience do you have that you can share in terms of narrowing a, a topic down to a specific uh, question? A dissertation, either from your own experience or from your students' experience. You know, I keep thinking I have this one figured out, and I don't. Um, it's different with every student, um, and it's different with every paper, right? It's different with every dissertation, and, and ultimately, it's different with every paper. Um, I don't know. Um, my own, you know, my, my, my approach to dis, you know, to, to dissertation work is to sit down with students often and, and largely follow their lead and help them figure out how to make something, you know, something as narrow and focused as possible. Because one thing I know that, that those of you who are sitting in the room at dissertation, quick show of hands, um, how many of you are sort of at, in the doctoral student stage, you know, either working on a dissertation or thinking about working on a dissertation? So we've got... Um, so, so you in your head know that this is going to be really complex. I in my gut know that it is going to be really complex and it's going to be more complex than you realize it's going to be. Um, and I'm sure that's, I know that's true of all the faculty on this call who've you know, done dissertations, work with people doing dissertations. So my main job in a dissertation is to keep, put, you know, keep people pushing people to make it narrower and narrower and narrower so that when it blows up, it's still manageable. Um, I mean, the, the structured thing I do, one structured thing I do is, is, and this is both true for papers and true for dissertations, is, is really push people hard to think about who the audience is. And, you know, Herb Simon used to have a sort of a two-part uh, way of thinking about a piece of research, and this is relevant for dissertations. He said, you know, he would say um, that any good paper, any good dissertation has a question and has an answer. It has a question that I think is interesting as a, you know, as an audience will think is interesting, as a reader will think is interesting, and it has an answer that gives me a reason to believe that there's a re that it's reliable. And so question and, and, and then a research design that gives you a reliable answer. And there's, but there's a third part to that that's implicit in that, which is the audience, right? Because one question will be of interest to one audience and not to another. One research design will be reliable for one audience and not for another. Every audience has its own norms of reliability. And so a dissertation really is those three points, right? It's the question you're asking, the audience you're, you're having the conversation with about the question, and the research design that is, meets the norms of reliability for that audience. And by, and by audience, you know, I can think of big theories, you know, it's, 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 the audience is ecological theory, or the audience is, is evolutionary theory, or the audience is, you know, pick your favorite theory of the moment. Um, I'd rather think of it in terms of names of people you know, here are the five, six people that I'd like to have sitting down at a table with me talking about this work. Um, and they might be dead, so I've got their ghost. I'd like to have the ghost of Edith Penrose sitting at the table. Um, and, but some of them have to be actively engaged on the frontier of the field right now. Um, and 
because if, if we're just talking to bodies of literature, it's kind of this amorphous conversation. But if it's, these are the people I want sitting at the table with me. These are people I want to be intellectual, they're in my intellectual community and I, I aspire to them to being peers in that intellectual community. Um, then that helps give some focus to it. Um, I, I mean, I, I was at the first Triple C CCC conference, which Steve Klepper and Dick Nelson and David Thiessen and, and Sid and others ran in Carnegie about 30 years ago. And it was a year before I was, it was maybe eight months before I was coming up for tenure. And I was having this, and, and I was at the point where the, you know, Michigan had told me that I had to put together a list of people that I wanted to be my reviewers. And I looked around the room and I said, gee, I need 12 people on that list and 10 of them are here. Uh, <laughs> you know, because, you know, Nate was, Rosenberg was there and Tees was there and Nelson was there and Winter and Klepper and others, um, Dick Rosenblum. Um, and that was, that's an incredibly powerful thing, right? To know who, who know who it is that you want, that, that you're talking with. And with a dissertation, the closer you can get to that, you know, who's at the core? There's going to be lots of other people on the periphery, but who's the group of six, 10, 12 people who are at the center of who you want to have the conversation with? If you can really identify that, I think that's the strongest sign that you've got that you're, that you're ready to move on. I mean, Tom, you went through this um, with your work. How did you decide on who your, who your, um, your audience was? Uh, we've got to unmute you, Tom. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I think he's still muted. There is. Really? Unmute. Okay, sorry. No? Now you're good. Hmm. Now good? Okay. Sorry, yeah, it was a little confusing because I had econ people and uh, strategy people uh, on my committee, but I, I was I was trying to push more to a strategy audience and was thinking about it that way. And uh, I, I guess I was just thinking about the corporate strategy audience mostly. Right. And Aldis, you went through it, and you and you've had to figure figure that you know you had to figure this out on the fly. How did you, how did you decide? So I'm not sure if I ever did, <laughs> uh, because I, I had that strong strategy. Uh, your your work on you know firm level change, at least way back when, uh, in the way I looked at it, the international component, and then imprinting. So in a way, three audiences, but I think what what I've enjoyed, at least in that path, is your initial comment where you've let students take the lead. And that, for me, you know, I came in saying I'm going to do transitional economies, and you saw that's what I wanted to do, and you supported that all the way. So I think the fact that you've always let the students, as far as I can tell, find their own path instead of them just copying you. That's what I always appreciated uh, for you as a PhD, you know, co-chair and, and mentor uh, in my research. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I know I've heard you, Will, talk about the, these three criteria before of, um, you know, audience question and answer. I think the last time we, we talked about this, you also mentioned a fourth criterion, which was uh, a reason why the answer is important. Uh, I remember you placed a, a big emphasis on that. Do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit? So, again, that comes down to the audience, right? Um, 
So for people coming up through engineering, knowing whether a table is flat or not, is an interesting, is an, can be an important question. Um, for us in strategy, less so. Uh, I just, you know, I just did a, a, a presentation to some potential students around um, commercialization of, uh, of, of some life sciences uh, technology involving a xenomouse. It's an old Harvard case. Um, and for some of them it was completely relevant and for others well, they were struggling to figure out why it was relevant. For the folks in the commercialization part of the field, this dead center to what they wanted to do. For the folks who were clinicians in a hospital, they weren't quite sure that it was relevant for them. Mm. And so again, it comes back to knowing who your audience is and, 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 who, and who you want to engage with. Um, and so, but, but it's also, we had this conversation, it's, it's important, important slash interesting, right? Mm. And, and many, who, quick show of hands, how many people have received reviews from reviewers? <laughs> <laughs> of, of those that have received reviews from reviewers, how many of you have had the comment, um, I don't find this interesting? <laughs> or, you, haven't, you haven't convinced me this is interesting. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and, and you haven't convinced me is a really important statement because it's, it says it's endogenous, mm. right? It says, in part, the field has a norm of what it thinks is interesting, you know, on June 12, 2020. But it's also our job as scholars to convince the field that what we're doing is interesting and that you didn't pay, we were paying attention to it, but you should know because I've got some logic for why this is relevant for theory or this is relevant for empirics or this is relevant for policy or this is relevant for strategy, but you've identified some reason why there's a body of people who will be able to do something with your results that they couldn't have done before. And, and even more than the results, will be able to do something with your argument, with your logic that they couldn't have done before. So important slash interesting, I think actually is as much the response, it, it, maybe even more, the responsibility of all of us in this call rather than expecting the, 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 the audience to, to, to sort of tell us if it's interesting. I mean, I sometimes use the analogy of, uh, I've made the mistake of, stand, of, of, of standing out there with a megaphone yelling, hoping that somebody will figure out what it is that I'm, you know, what I'm hearing, and that somebody will hear, hear it and figure it out. And then I discover that I'm actually standing, rather than standing on top of a mountain with a megaphone, I'm standing on top of a molehill inside a canyon. And the, noise, and, and the, and the, the sound is just bouncing off the walls and nobody hears it. Um, it's my job to talk directly to someone who um, I think will find this relevant and explain to them why it's relevant. Good. So um, one question I like to ask uh, guests is, um, you know, your, your, your particular research focus has been on this dynamic interrelationship between a firm and its environment, right? Is that fair to say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think, within that topic of this dynamic relationship between the firm and its environment, what do you think are the most important questions that still have not yet been answered, the most important unanswered questions about that topic? Hmm. Oh, you know, some infinite number of questions. Um, why do some, firm, some firms, some organizations survive when all the others around them are failing? Hmm. Um, why do some organizations that should fail keep going forever, otherwise known as academic health centers. Um, um, and, um, and mediocre universities. 
um, to be, you know, to be maybe too close to home. Um, where, um, what's the relationship between adding new stuff and getting rid of old stuff? Ah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I've got a current stream of research, especially with Elena Vidal on divestitures and, and, we're, I think we're convincing ourselves if, and, and have managed to convince a few reviewers and readers that um, getting, rid of stuff, getting rid of stuff is, is, is part and parcel of adding stuff. Um, and, and actually ends up having, you know, potentially having a big impact on performance for, you know, for fairly obvious reasons. You, you, know, you, don't, get, you don't get rid of stuff, you, get, uh, you just get so complex, you, don't, you, you, you can't manage it. Um, um, can I make a comment here? Please do. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm sorry it's going to be mostly about myself, I guess. But in the 1960s, when I was studying uh, for my PhD, um, I had gotten very interested in the question uh, when I was in the Air Force um, trying to monitor research and development work on titanium. And I got very interested in uh, why people undertook certain kinds of research and not other kinds of research. And, and, and why did, I was trained as an engineer, and why did some of these people doing this research um, not ask themselves the question, if, if I have success with this research, what good will it do anybody? Uh, and, and they they were interested in just solving the question that they had put to themselves about how do I how do I weld titanium how do I form it how can I make an airplane out of it so on and they they never connected the idea to to use and it it led me to think about businesses and how they worried about. Um, their R&D, which was said to be very, very important to them. Uh, it was their future and so on. And I got interested in the whole question of commercialization and, and really uh, saying, why do some businesses succeed and why do some fail? And that has been for me the most fundamental question we have to answer. Yeah. Why? Why do some succeed? Why do some fail? Can we say how we do that? That mostly began in the literature of management as a question of efficiency and not a question of effectiveness. And uh, when, I, when I started harping about strategic management in the late 60s here at Purdue, I, I saw something different um, then we weren't asking that question as teachers. We just weren't. And, and there was more to it than efficiency, that, that there was something that, that ended up being called strategy. And, uh, and of course, I was an uh, a, a, uh, apostle for strategic management throughout the whole decade of the 70s, and nobody ever caught up with me till the end of it, but, but it, it, 
I, I still think if you have to explain what the hell it is you do, what do you study? You're trying to, I think you got to say it has to do with success and failure. Can I answer that question? Yeah. Yeah. So let me just throw some numbers, rough numbers out. I did a quick thing with the CompuSat a couple of years ago where I took CompuSat firms that were in the CompuSat in 1950, 19, I had to find 1950, but they weren't that reliable. So 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990, um, 2000, 2010. Um, and then I think I was doing, I think I was, I think I did this in 2016, 2017. And so how many are still alive in 2017? This is just a really quick thing I was using for teaching. And, you know, those in 1960, there were maybe 8% that were still alive. And those in 1970, there were maybe 9% that were still alive. Those in 1990, there were maybe 10 or 11. I think 2011 or 12, 13, something like that. Uh, 2010, post, so these are companies that were around after the, 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 the crisis, the, 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 the big recession. So these are companies that have managed to get through the recession, robust enough to get through the recession. And six, seven years later, only 70% of them were still alive. Now, 70 sounds like a large number, but we're talking, you know, less than a decade, just over half a decade, and 30% are gone. And these are companies that had demonstrated that they could survive through a tough time. Mm -hmm. There is an amazing amount of turnover. Yes, there is. And on the other hand, there are a few that survive. Yeah. And it's, and they're not, it's not two sides of the same coin. There's somewhat different explanations for failure, and it's not just turn them over and you get the explanations for survival. Mm -hmm. And it's partly to do with environments, it's partly to do with industries, it's partly to do with the, the technology that the firm has had, it's partly to do with the people in the firm and the transitions from one group of people to another. I mean, this is a hugely, if we go back to the notion of complex causality, this is a complex causality writ large. And you can't do one big study and gather it all. But you can tease out really interesting parts. And some of them are interlevel. You know, what's the relationship between, um, you know, a Kevin Lobo becoming CEO of Stryker when they, when they push out their, their former CEO for some personal reasons um, and making some changes in strategy um, and helping the company and, and the company make it, the company changing, you know, part, partly being the, 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 the last 10 years, partly being a function of the, the, the prior 40 years of the company, but also partly being a function of the insights of a new CEO who came in unexpectedly. And so there's some really interesting interlevel uh, questions that we could dig into. Uh, that is one of the things I like about this field is that, you know, we are studying an outlier phenomenon. Yeah. You know, yeah. basically success is rare yeah. and sustained success is far rarer. Yeah. And so it's really is an outlier phenomenon. That we and it's not just luck. Mm -hmm. Right. So you could take Lippmann and, you know, the, 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 the Lippmann and Ramel work seriously um, and Dick still sort of makes these arguments, then it's largely just luck. Uh, and there's an element of luck. But we've all been around enough, enough organizations to know that some people are better at managing unexpected events than others. True. And if you're better at managing unexpected events, then you're lucky, but you're also good. And our job as scholars is to figure out you know, some aspect, some systematic aspect of what makes you good. Or bad. The good part's more interesting. Let me ask you a couple of questions about um, uh, projects that you've done. Um, obviously, you've done you know a huge number of research projects over the years. 
Um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us about any particular challenges that you experienced in doing those projects that, you know, I don't know whether it might be challenges in terms of framing a project or figuring out the theory or gathering the data or analyzing the data or writing it or, you know, getting reviewers to believe it or whatever. But what, what, what have been the, the, any particular challenges that you've uh, encountered and how have you overcome them or, or, you know, maybe there was some reason why they couldn't be overcome, but tell us about something, something about that. Oh, I like data and don't like framing. <laughs> um, I'm perfectly happy to spend some, some, about six months ago, somebody asked me what, what my hobbies were. And I, and I thought for about 30 seconds, said putting together messy data sets. Um, I'm perfectly happy to spend Sunday night through four o'clock in the morning messing around with a messy data set that will probably never see the light in a publication, but will show up in my class someplace. Mm -hmm. I've got spreadsheets on top of spreadsheets on top of spreadsheets with data on many, many different industries and trying to track companies and associated aspects of them over time because it's fun. Um, But that's not a publication, right? Right. Um, That may be something that shows up in class. Um, you know, I do stuff on the auto industry in class. I do stuff on telecom. I do stuff on airlines. Um, you know, stuff, many, many different aspects of life sciences uh, because I'm, you know, on satellites because uh, I've got data I can draw on and I can sort of stick it into a class, either, you know, I'll pull it out of my pocket or do a formula. Uh, but that's not a publication. It's just a bunch of really cool, interesting data, but it's just data. Uh, a publication, you know, a, converse, a, a reliable, sustainable conversation with peers in the field needs framing, right? It needs, and, and framing is basically what? It's, um, some of you heard, probably heard me talk about blue state and red state research, where, is that, that familiar to anybody, those terms of blue and red research were familiar to anybody? Um, where, think about some pieces of, that you do, we do in research. One is, is, is we've got a theory, um, and two is we have, some logic for, for hypotheses or some logic for a research question that's interesting. Three is we have a research design with some data. And four is we have some results that we draw implications from. And one way to build a paper is to say, here's a theory, here's a, something, here's a hole in that theory, something we don't know. Here's some logic for why, how we might fill that hole. Here's some data that we can use to, you know, to test the logic. And here's some implications from the, from the research that design that tell us something new about theory, right? So we've got a theory called the resource-based view of the firm. We know some things in the resource-based view. There's some things we don't know, that's the whole. We develop logic around the resource-based view and, uh, and we say something new and we expand the boundaries of the resource-based view. Um, what journals does that sound like we publish that in? I have, a, I have filled a hole in theory. You know, I guess that sounds like maybe SMJ or, or AMJ. Certainly a piece of SMJ. Um, with AMJ, if you do your work in a different way, you might as well send the rejection letter along with, with, with the paper. I did that once, actually. I sent them a paper that says, this is, this is not a standard paper AMJ. So here, you know, if, if you don't want to take it, here's the, the, here's the rejection letter. Um, and <laughs> this, this cuts the chase. Um, and sure enough, they sent me the letter back. Um, and... Uh, it, was, it was much faster than going through the review process. Um, I mean, that's an AMJ paper. That's an ASQ paper. 
It's about a third of org science. Um, it's about probably a half to a third of SMJ. And that's uh, call those blue for whatever reason. Now take the same thing, but do it in a different order. Say, here's an empirical phenomenon that we don't have a deep understand, full enough, uh, sufficient understanding of. I think it's important, and I think there's other people around who will find it important. How, what's the relationship between strategy and policy in, in, in China right now? Mm. Um, I don't have any problem making, making the case that that's important. Uh, and I don't have any problem making the case that we don't know. That there's lots of ideas around it, but do we have a fundamental understanding of it? No, we don't. And does it matter? Do, do I have to, to convince us that it matters for business in China and business around the world and social impact around the world about the relationship between public policy, public policies in China and the way that firms develop their strategy, Chinese firms develop their strategies? Um, that, one's gonna affect, that, that one's gonna affect the lives of essentially every person on the face of the earth. Um, so you start with an interesting empirical question. And then rather than just dive into it willy nilly, you say, here's a couple of theories that'll help us think it through. They don't give us the full framing, but they at least give us some concepts we can work with. Mm. Right? And in that case, it might be something from political science. It might be something, something from strategic leadership. Um, I could, I'll think of other ways of doing it. But I'm, gonna, you know, I'm not going to try to do the whole thing. I'm not going to try to boil the ocean, but I'm going to pick a couple of things that will help me understand it. Um, and so I start with the empirical framing, but the, the empirical question, but then frame it with some, some, some concepts, with some concepts and theoretical concepts, and then do the research design and come out with some results that tell me something about the empirics and actually might tell me something about the theory as well. Right. Because the whole, because if I don't have a full theory, then there's some theoretical contribution as well. Um, what journals will take papers like that? Um, well, there's that, what is it, Academy of Management Discoveries, right? The new... I've, 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 I've sent two papers to AMD. I've been rejected both times. And in both cases, this, uh, the rejection letter said, uh, we're an empirical journal, but we're an academy journal, therefore we need theory. Mm. Wow. But I thought that was the, the in, intended in, purpose in, of that journal. In, in theory, at least, AMD should be in that space, yes. Yeah. Research policies in that space, um, management sciences in that space, maybe a third of... of uh, of org sciences in that space, uh, roughly maybe a half of SMJ. Um, and this is, you know, the, the, so then, then imagine you do a paper that tries to do both. So, you, you know, in, in, your first, in your introduction, you say, I'm going to do a theoretical contribution to the resource-based view of the firm and to evolutionary economics. And by the way, I'm going to tell you something fundamentally new about this phenomenon that, that we don't fully understand. Um, does, does the purple valley of death sound like about the right description? Yeah, I was going to say, that's, you know, I, I had a, 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 one of the doctoral students who was one year ahead of me in my doctoral program said, gave, this, gave me this piece of advice in terms of selecting uh, members for a dissertation committee. He said, when two dogs fight over a bone, the bone loses. Yeah. So I think you're setting yourself up with the purple to be a bone. Yeah, I mean, I had the good fortune at one, Klasher uh, McMoon and I did, had a paper that took five years to get through, through management science. And the only reason it got through is because we had the good fortune to have an anonymous reviewer named Tarun Khanna, who kept saying, you cannot say this is a contribution to network theory. 
because we kept saying this is a contribution of network theory and we're going to tell you something about the evolution of buyer-supplier relationships in, uh, in, in, in a setting with business groups and how they affect innovativeness. And we kept stumbling because we we're trying to do both. You know, and Tarun, in his guise as an anonymous reviewer, kept saying, no, you can't do that. Mm. Right? There's an interesting empirical thing here. You can use network theory to frame it, but you do not have a contribution to network theory. And he forced you to narrow it down. To force us to say you, to te, you know, to say, to force us to climb, try to climb only one mountain, mm. <laughs> as opposed to having one leg on one mountain and another leg on the other mountain. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know that that brings up that that segues nicely into the next question I was going to ask because I wanted to tap into your experience as uh, with several decades as an editor. I'm guessing you've written hundreds, perhaps thousands of decision letters in that time, and. Uh, you know, do you have any advice for authors? I mean, I'm sure you've seen, you've seen authors who have handled the review process well and authors who have handled the review process poorly. And I'm wondering if you've drawn any lessons from that, any, any advice you can give us about being, you know, one of the authors who handles the review process well rather than poorly. Yeah. So I'm in this crowd and second only to Dan in writing decision letters. Um, I've written a little over 3,000 um, for SMJ. Um, Dan has written more than that. Um, um, so, start, you know, so the basic, I, I won't belabor this, but, you know, when you submit, know who, you're, know who your, your audience is. Um, I, I make sure that my first, par first paragraph, first two paragraphs cite the people that I want in the core audience and don't cite the people I don't want in the core audience. Um, they, the people I don't want in the core audience may show up later in the control variables or in the secondary part of the theory, but I don't want them front and center because they're not, they're, they're not the people I'm talking with. And how many of us who've had reviews have had one re a reviewer from one camp and a reviewer from a different camp and they both want different things. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and, and it's completely and totally impossible to, to, res to respond to both. And that's from, in my experience, that's my fault. Um, I set up the paper where it's not clear whether it's whether it should go to Bill Barnett or whether it should go to Dick Nelson. Mm. And Bill and Dick are both wonderful people, but they look at the world in different ways. And I'm going to, I can't satisfy both. Um, and so for me, first paragraph, first two paragraphs, introduction is about the people who are central to my argument. And as an editor, that's my, that's, that's the signal for who I should be looking for reviewers. Right, so I don't, as an editor, I don't go just to the site bibliography and look for people in the bibliography. I read the first couple of paragraphs and see who the author is telling me is the core audience. Mm -hmm. And then pick those people or pick people that are related to those people. Um, so that's the first thing is just line us up so that we know who the, the, the relevant audience is. And then when you get, when they get the paper back, whether it's a rejection, R&R, &R, review and resubmit or, or rejection, um, I've learned to write uh, an R to R table where I take um, each, I've got three columns in the table and in each cell, the co uh, in each column, uh, in, in, in the first column, I just copy in every comment. And then in the second column, I summarize the comments so that I really understand what the person's asking. Hmm. And for those of us who've written reviews, how often do you write a review where you kind of know there's something there, but you don't have the time to really get into precisely what it is. And so you kind of raise the issue, but you're not quite exactly sure what it is, but you know it needs to be dealt with. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Familiar to anybody who's written a review? Guilty as charged. 
and it's not guilty because um, it's not my job to, to, to come up with the answers. It's my job to come up with the questions. And so in that second pair, the second column, I, start, I summarize it down to say, this is what I think you're asking. This is how I interpret what you're asking. And that may become part of the conversation if I've mis, mis, mischaracterized it, but I usually get it right. Um, and then in the third column, it's, this is how I'm, this is how I plan to deal with it. Right. And I'll circulate, my co-authors and I actually will circulate that R to R table um, around amongst ourselves several times before we start the revision, because it's a roadmap for what we're going to do. So it's a second question for those of us done revisions. How many of us have done a revision, then written the response to reviewers, discovered that we didn't really respond to one thing and tried to hide that fact? Mm. Because we want to go back and tear, tear the revision apart to fix it. Now that one is guilt. And yeah. I'll, put my, I'll put both hands up. I have done that. How many times has it worked? Never. Exactly. Never. So doing the roadmap first is really important. And I do it both with rejections and with R to R's. Because a rejection is just an opportunity to submit, resubmit someplace else. And odds are I'm going to run into the same questions, possibly run into the same reviewers. So I might as well do it right as opposed to changing the date, calling revision and sending it to another journal. Um, then I guess the, the third thing, and I'll stop there, is um, Dan was really good at this. I like to believe I'm good at this. I'd like to believe that the editors of SMJ are good at this because we've been really careful about who we invite to be editors of SMJ, is that we don't take votes, right? And how many of us have been in another, another, how many of us question, how many of us have been, had a paper gone to a journal and the edit and you, you look at it and you realize that what the editor is doing is just sitting there as the traffic cop mm. and counting, counting how many times the, the, the reviewers say yes. And how many times the reviewers say no. And if you get unanimity, the, the, the editor says, says yes. And if you get a majority, maybe they say yes. And otherwise they say no, mm-hmm. they're a traffic cop. Um, SMJ doesn't appoint traffic cops to co-editor roles. Um, and that's really going back to the history. That's going back to Dan's imprint. We'll talk about imprint. Um, and good journals don't appoint traffic cops as decision editors. Um, they appoint people who gather information from reviewers, who gather information from their own reading of the paper, gather information from their understanding of the field, and then they make a judgment call mm-hmm. about whether it should move forward or not. And I'll be on it. I mean, you, usually if I do my job right in picking reviewers, I, can, I follow the lead of the reviewers because we are, I'm on the same page as they are. But there have been times when I have said no when every reviewer has said yes, and there have been times when I have said yes when every reviewer has said no. Mm. Because I've got more information than they do. And it's my job as a writer, as an author, to give the editor as clear a sense of what I'm doing so they can make a thoughtful judgment in their, their role as a decision editor rather than a traffic cop. And so for any R to R, I actually now write a summary paragraph, summary page at the beginning and say, look, here are the major, these are the big things people asked for. Here are the major steps that I took to deal with them. Here are the things I didn't do. This is why I didn't do them. And I try to minimize the number of things I didn't do, but there's always some things you don't do. Right. And you might as well be honest about it right from the beginning. Um, and then I actually now typically just include the R to R table, you know, this copy, the copy and paste the spreadsheet into it and say, here's the details here, you know, because we can, you know, and, and then I'll write a point form response after that as well. 
But that front, that first part of it, I think actually is, is important because that's a conversation partly with the viewers, but it's especially a conversation with the editor. And you're much better off, we're much better off as authors if our conversation is with the editor rather than with the reviewers. Does that ring true to folks who've gone through this process on either the editorial side of the table or the author side of the table? Yeah. Let me try to squeeze in one last question uh, before we take our break. Um, so, and, and this question is driven by, you know, your, um, your great success in mentoring doctoral students, what we talked about earlier, you know, how many uh, incredibly productive doctoral students you've turned out. Um, what, what's the most important piece of advice that you've given to your own doctoral students? Oh, um, stay focused, you know, change, stay focused. And, and, and um, I think of the dissertation, and this is, you know, dissertation progress, career progress, we're moving, right? And, and, it's just, and it's a spiral, but you want it to be a spiral moving forward rather than just going around in circles. Um, I mean, you, you know, we learn from every piece of work we do. We learn from every conversation we have. So, so things change. And one of the just truly stunningly amazing things, parts of this profession that we're in, is that we, more than anybody else in the world, have the ability to wake up each day and say, what do I do today? That is a great perk of the job. And there are constraints. You know, and, and the, the more we're in administrative roles, the more the constraints are. But even for those of us in administration, um, there are huge, there's huge flexibility. Even okay. we, um, so oh, sorry, hold on a second. That's, that was me. Okay. I apologize. No, no, no. We still get apology, Rich. Um, but if we, so, so the, the, the risk of that, of course, is that you just go off in 16 directions at once and never get anything done. Right. Um, and especially as the farther we get into the career, the more the short-term horizon things dominate the long-term horizon things. And the risk is we don't get any meaningful work done. Right. You know, we just help a student solve to, should I take this course or that, or can I get a deferral for this versus a deferral for that? As opposed to, um, I really want to understand the nature of this question that I'm working on and I have to carve out time to work on it. That's what co-authors are for and, and responsibility to co-authors is for. Um, that's what responsibility doctoral students is for. Um, so, you know, I actually take a lot of, it, there's a lot of value to me in having doctoral students as co-authors and having junior faculty as co-authors because their careers are on the line if I screw up. Um, so you have to do the longer term work because you're messing up somebody else's life. Right. Well, thank you, Will, for indulging us for this, uh, this celebrity talk show format. We appreciate that. 